So here's what we're doing. We're looking at the Holy Spirit. And the reason is, is because Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry of the Holy Spirit is vital. If for no other reason that he tells us about what the Holy Spirit is capable to do in the life of a person, but on the flip side of that, when he is going to be before the eyes of his closest followers, betrayed, arrested, 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 that wasn't even Kentucky slang, I don't know what that was, arrested, going through a ridiculous scene of being passed and forth between leaders, finally condemned, flogged, mocked, beaten, made to carry his own cross, and then crucified, dies. And can you can imagine the helplessness when the one that you've placed all your hope in has been taken away from you suddenly? And so everything that Jesus is going to say about the Holy Spirit talks about what happens in the life of a person, but also his power in relation to his earthly absence. And so this is going to take us a couple of weeks in order to kind of grasp some of this. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even know how we're going to get through with what we got going on today. It's supposed to snow tonight? Maybe we'll all just sleep over. Be in tomorrow? We're okay. We're good. So here's what I'm going to do. Ask everybody to turn to Genesis 1. And you're probably familiar with this from the get-go. We've read this a lot. We've gone over it a lot. We talk about it a lot. When you deal with the Hebrew word for spirit, it also has a wide semantic range of meaning wind or breath. And so context is going to determine how it's to be used or to understood, but I think it's pretty clear here in Genesis 1, look at verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, notice that, was moving, hovering over the surface or over the face of the waters, over the face of the deep. At the very beginning of creation, the Spirit is present. The Spirit is active. The Spirit is there. The Spirit is fully God. Let's go ahead and rid our mental vocabulary of referring to the Holy Spirit as it. The Holy Spirit is not it. The Holy Spirit is He. And He is perfectly God. Notice that even in the midst of creation, the Holy Spirit is indispensable. And seeing this action come through. Now, we're familiar with John 1, right? The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made through Him, and there wasn't anything that was made that was not made, and He was a part of that. So we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit are indispensable in the idea of just creating, just the formation of matter out of nothing and the institution of time. The Holy Spirit is there. Now, what's interesting about this is you see some flashes of maybe the Spirit's work going on when it's blatantly talked about. But sometimes it's a little hard in order to distinguish what exactly it is that He's doing. So from here we go to Exodus 31. That's quite a long way to go. You'll see some evidence of Him working. I'm not here to try to bog you down with Old Testament references to the Spirit. This is by no means exhaustive. But what I want to do is I want to show you some things about how the Holy Spirit acted in relation to people up until 
the institution of the church in Acts chapter 2 so that we understand the significance in Acts 2 of the switch that takes place, okay? So look at Exodus 31. And this is whenever Moses is commissioned with all of the plans about how to go about building the tabernacle so that the Spirit of God will dwell amongst his people. So notice chapter 31 of Exodus verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel. Anybody got kids coming? Bezalel. There you go. Write it down. The son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have, now watch this, filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom. Pay attention to the qualities. In understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings, for in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Now you might say, okay, so the Holy Spirit made him not so ignorant at Menards? Is that what happened here? Well, not so much. Because what we're talking about here is carefully crafting the tabernacle. Now, how many of you, have, if, if New Year, it's usually the New Year that gets you, right? You're gung-ho, want to read through the Bible, right? And you're good about it, man. You're pressing away, and you get to where the children of Israel are at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. Yeah, God's telling them good stuff. This is good. And all of a sudden, they start unfolding all the intricacies of the cubits and how the tabernacle's made, and you start... Getting sleepy. Anybody? Don't lie. Okay, praise the Lord. Two honest people, all the rest of you, the Lord knows your heart. But why is it that way? Because everything that God commanded, and if you've read it, He is very meticulous. Do it just like this. Don't stray. Don't get out of line with it. Just as I have told you, make it in this way. Why is that? Because it is an earthly shadow, a replica, a copy of what is already established in heaven and how God is worshipped. So notice that the Holy Spirit fills this man in order to give him this wisdom and knowledge and understanding and the ability to craft things because it is a representation of things that are already divinely constructed before God in heaven. It has to be perfect. So notice that the Spirit's filling work is in order to accomplish specific, exact divine designs. Everybody see that? It's important for us to know. Now, let's move on to the next one. By the way, I am all sort of out of sorts this morning. 1 Samuel. Let's look at this instance because this is interesting. This comes to the point in 1 Samuel where Israel has rebelliously asked for a king like all the rest of the nation. Some of you remember when we covered this. And a man named Saul of Kish is a man who is chosen by the Lord and anointed by Samuel in order to be the king of Israel. 1 Samuel 10. Apologize. I've got, by the way, I've got a lot more in my notes than what I'm sharing with you today. So if you want to go through and look through some of the instances that I've chronicled of Old Testament findings of the, of the Holy Spirit and maybe trying to clear up some problems we might come 
out whenever we go through that. Please take your notes home, study through those. Um, in 1 Samuel 10, we have that he is anointed, Saul is anointed. And look at verse 6, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord, this is Samuel talking to him, will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. This is the changing work of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and will essentially cause you to speak divine utterances of God, is what prophesying was at that time. He was going to prophesy along with some prophets that were there. And this was going to be a display of God's seal upon him as the approved first king of Israel. But not only that, he was going to be changed. Sounds like some pretty good important stuff, right? Now how about this? If we look over at chapter 11, look over one chapter, just give you a, 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 brief, uh, a, a brief idea of what's going on here. A guy named Nahash, another great word to name your kids, Nahash the Amorite comes in and he's going to besiege a city called Jabesh-Gilead. And in doing so, in capturing the city, he's pretty much saying, I'm going to take all of your right eyes out, which is not a good time, Okay. So they say, give us some time here. Let's pray about this situation. And when Saul hears of what has taken place, this injustice with this man Nahash swooping in, look at verse 6 of chapter 11. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very, what does it say? Angry. Now, there may be some of us, they may come to the table and say, you know what, I've always thought that any time that there's anger in a situation, that anger is not from God. I tell you no. The question is, are you angry about God things? Let me give you a prime example. How many people are angry about the legislature of New York right now? Do you think that's a good thing to be angry about? Or should we confess, Lord, Lord, I know I shouldn't be angry. No, it's a really good thing. Why? Because they have passed approval to kill children. And they stood and they applauded it when it passed. Because of women's rights, women's right to choose. It's her body. She'll do what she wants with it. We are an entitled bunch, aren't we? You think God is happy about that? No. And I think what we're going to see is probably God's passive wrath in this situation of just letting New York's sin run wild and devour itself. Now let's be careful. We are not any better than they are. Our sin may be different. See what I'm saying? But we're not any better than they are. So the idea isn't to sit here and self-righteously point the finger and condemn other people, but it's the idea to humbly issue from God's Word that does not change. You are wrong in deciding this. Everybody see how that's a different attitude to take? And then leave it up to God. Leave room for His vengeance. God will take care of it. This didn't surprise God. But I would say it's 150% right for us to be angry about a situation like that and even for us to weep about a situation like that that's sad that's sad and here's the reason why that's sad when i think about it because if that was a situation where one of those kids 
babies needed to be adopted, I guarantee you that probably half of our church wouldn't mind getting on a bus and going there and bringing them into our families. You see what I'm saying? They don't have to die. But for some reason, there's a, that was the right decision. Yep, that's the direction this state needs to go. Yeah, progressive. Your idea of progressive is beyond the insurance on your car. You're in trouble. So notice, the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. When he heard these words, he became angry. Look down at verse 11 here. Um, do I need to have verse 11 there? I don't need to have verse 11 there. Never mind. We're not worried about that. But essentially what happened was, is that Saul collected some men together and he led a charge and he dominated the Ammonites for what they were doing there and destroyed Nahash. The Spirit of God led him into this war. Look over at 1 Samuel 15. If you're in the Deuteronomy class, you have gone through something uh, with us. It's kind of hard to stomach sometimes, and that's the idea of harem. It is the idea of utter destruction, or what a lot of people attribute to the idea of holy war. It is the idea of Israel coming upon a society and acting as God's judgment tool in order to destroy off the face of the earth everything that would be representative of that civilization because it's not just pagan. It hasn't just saturated everything around it, but because its dominant demonic influence would lead astray the people of God if they were not decisively dealt with. Uh, they had merited death in God's eyes by their ongoing sin is the idea. And so you see actually an instance of this. And I apologize, Mitch, I'm going to throw some stuff at you here. In chapter 15, look at verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek. And utterly destroy, there's that Hebrew word, harem. And it's the idea of put under a ban. That they are banned, kind of, and, it's, and the idea is extermination, is what it is. The Lord has declared death to these people. He says, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey you say good grief that's bothersome is that bothersome how do we deal with that with god i mean didn't god just command this it's difficult and then what do we do we sit here and we go okay wait a second so how's god any different than what just happened in new york don't our minds want to lead us in that direction we kind of think about well how is this different when we talk about the death of children let me ask you this if you're a parent do your actions reflect upon your children in some way they do don't they in fact if we know anything from reading the bible how god has structured the family is that the mother and the father are the sole responsible sources for the upbringing of their children it's not the public school system it's not sunday school class it's not church, it's not a wanna, it's not youth group. Nobody else is in charge of raising our kids but us. And when a society of people have decided that they are going to so turn away from God, from righteousness, from seeking His face, from fearing Him, from revering Him, from loving Him, from valuing His Word, from desiring to have Him as the sole means 
of what we should be praising and who we should be praising the whole time if we're not sitting here recognizing that all that we have comes from him anyway and this idea of self 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 pride 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 starts bubbling over onto everything and a society has gotten so far gone as they did in old testament times where you actually bow down to other gods and you take your children and you throw them in a fiery altar in order to burn them to appease this god that three weeks ago you had to chisel out of a rock on your own there's some desperate destitute problems going on there you see that this notion of pride that's destroying societies has got to go and our national rejection of god has not helped anything i was thinking about this the other day can i go on a tangent like you're not on one Anybody notice that I've never seen a gay humble parade? It's always a gay pride parade. Why is humility so lost on our culture? Why is meekness such a dirty word? When Jesus commanded us to be humble and to be meek. And to have these attitudes that at least show some sort of I'm not all that matters. We are a narcissistic society. We love us. And because we love us, we are inviting judgment. Because we're not eternal. We didn't create anything. The only thing I've ever created in my life is all the mess I needed to be saved out of. That's how good I am at creating things. So this whole idea of what God has said, you know what, that sounds helpful sometimes, never. Because that's how people treat the counsel of His Word. It's not about us, guys. never has been. Just a lot of times we're much slower to learn the lesson. Okay, tangent done, back to this. So notice the command, don't spare anybody. Go in and take care of it. And God even gives a rationale. This is discipline for them. This is a judgment against them for how they treated my people and how they were antagonistic towards them when they were traveling through coming out of Egypt. Now, Saul, good intentions. And let me tell you guys, good intentions will get you in trouble. But my intentions were good, but what you did was wrong. Good intentions will get you in trouble. Saul decides when they go in, and he was peer pressured by the people to do what they said to do instead of what God said to do, he ended up sparing the king. And he said, you know what? Those are some pretty fine looking sheep over there. I bet we could get some good sweaters out of those. That's not what it really says, but you get it. And so he spares that too. And he starts to go through and kind of do an assessment of what would best benefit us and make us richer and healthier and nicer and brighter and cleaner and instead of destroy everything. And I love Samuel's sense of humor. Look at verse 13. Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of Yahweh. And you've got, I mean, you know that there was some sort of just disgust on Samuel's mind, right? Because look what he says. Verse 14. 
But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? Samuel, we're glad to see you. The Lord told us to destroy these people. Man, we went in there. We trusted the Lord. We fought for the Lord. We did what God told us to do. Really? <laughs> you can almost hear it in the background, can't you? Just condemnation out of an animal's mouth. Unbelievable. Notice, look at verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And you know what we do with questions in the Bible, right? We answer them. So you get your pen out, you write in all caps, N-O, exclamation point, sad face maybe, I don't know. But no! God would rather you obey Him than have the best intentions on your heart. Because if our intentions are not within the path of obedience, we have gone astray. Notice what it says after that. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, or some of your translations say, to listen, to listen to God, is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of, what's it say, guys? Divination, witchcraft. To rebel against God is like you pulling out the Ouija board and the crystal ball and the, and the tarot cards and you're just going for it. Calling on whatever to answer your need. Rebelling against God is like that. Now that's not me. That's straight out of a prophet's mouth. If you rebel against God, if you had good intentions about it, but you don't do what he said, it's like you're worshiping a demon. Is that serious? Okay, so hopefully we're doing a self-inventory right now. I may be pulling some 1 John 1, 9 later. Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination. You know what's interesting about that? Some translations say self-will. Insubordination. Man, that's super technical. It almost sounds, uh, I don't even know what the word would be. Like you've been incarcerated in some way. You're insubordinate, right? No, what it means is that you acted on your own self-will. Notice that. Self-will is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, watch this, He has also rejected you from being king. And when Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. And listened to their voice. I was taking everybody else's opinion instead of just doing what you told me to do. I tried to rationalize it and make it better. You've sinned. Verse 25, Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me. And Samuel says, Nope, not going to do it. Look over at verse uh, 28. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Now here's what's interesting. Beforehand when we saw Saul, when we saw Saul, didn't he have the Spirit of God on him? Didn't he prophesy? Yeah. Wasn't he changed into another man? But notice, even with the influence that the Spirit of God was having upon him, it did not 
make him into sinless perfection. He still had the ability to choose against what God had told him to do. That's important to understand about how that works in tandem with the Spirit. Now look down at 16.1. Where am I at? I'm in 17. How'd I get there? I don't know. 16.1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Who's this? It's David. And now I want to show you something that is frightening. Look over chapter 16. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord, there he is again, right? Spirit of the Lord. Came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. You say, that's not so terrifying. No, but the next verse is. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. In other words, the Lord used a demon to judge Saul for his rebellion. But here's the scary thing. In the Old Testament, you could have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God could be removed, taken away. See, this is the beauty of where we live right now in church history and in the history of how God has set up everything. You and I live in a time now where when the Spirit God comes, when you believe in Christ, He indwells you and He stays. You don't ever have to worry about the Spirit of God being taken from you. With the institution of the church came a new way that the Spirit desired desired to work amongst His people. But could God remove His Spirit from people in the Old Testament? Yes, and He did. When their sin called for that. Scary thing. There's a lot more that we could look at here, but here's a summation I want to give you. The Old Testament shows us that the Holy Spirit would bless, guide, and even cause men to prophesy prophesy while also granting knowledge, wisdom, and skill for tasks that the Lord desired to see accomplished. It is also clear that the Spirit could be removed due to disobedience. We all together on that? Okay. So now we turn over to the New Testament. Everybody's shoulders relax. Yeah? Oh, I love the New Testament. Praise the Lord. We go verse by verse through the book of Malachi. You guys want to know what's going on, right? Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or let's say it this way, the historical authentication that he is directly related to not just David, but also Abraham, and therefore is a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, but also has the right to rule as king. He has that right. But look down to verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus, chapter 1 of Matthew, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now can we explain the mechanics of that? No. And that's okay. If we could figure out how God does something like that, we wouldn't need to read the Bible anymore because we'd already know it all. But notice, the Holy Spirit's role in this situation was generating, 
if we want to say impregnating, or whatever it was going on in such a way as to where we can understand what is later known as the hypostatic union. Has anybody ever heard of the phrase the hypostatic union? Okay, some of you have. Great. And the idea is is that Jesus Christ is 100% man, but He is also 100% God. He is 100% flesh, but He is also 100% divine. And neither one of those diminish one another. Neither one of those cause conflict with one another. It's not a 75-25 type deal going on here. It's not like how you buy your, your ground beef. It's not like that. He's 100 and 100, okay? So notice, with the Spirit of God being what brings about the impregnation of Mary, apart from there needing to be a human father in the mix, you have the divine essence surviving in a flesh vehicle that would be born into this world. Does that make sense? Now stop for a second. Is God cool or what? Have you ever read through any pagan literature that's ever come up with something like this? Nothing else has ever resembled this at all. You always see, and the God of the hills got mad at the God of the trees and they fought and they took that guy's guts when he died and made the sky. and It's all weird stuff like that. God's doing stuff like here that people don't even think of. In fact, later on, it seems that the Pharisees wanted to accuse Jesus, or at least his mother, of being impregnated out of wedlock. Well, guess what? You're correct, but not like you think. Very interesting to see how God has divine answers for solutions that often, or situations that often elude us. How about going down to verse 20? Verse 19, Joseph planned to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now let's not think that Joseph wasn't human, okay? Because if you got news that the lady you were engaged to was pregnant with the Holy Spirit, your first response in all holiness and reverence would probably be, right. But if it wasn't an angel who came to him, and if it wasn't revealed to him in a dream that he should stay with her and not divorce her, much more convincing proofs that God wants to go to in order to solidify the birth of his son into this world. Everybody see that that's a good thing? Okay, how about this? Turn over to Matthew 3. Matthew 3.11. This is John the Baptist. We looked over this a lot. There's a lot in here. But look at verse 11. He says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you. With the Holy Spirit, He will immerse you. He will make sure that you are identified with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. To either be redeemed or judged. Notice the act of the Holy Spirit. So notice, for those that are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, this idea of belonging to God because God indwells in you is going to be a new thing that takes place 
in Acts. Actually, what we find out is, is that when this does take place, Luke, being the smart doctor-type guy that he was, refers back to this verse. You have an instance where the New Testament is actually quoting another instance in the New Testament in order to show what's going on. Which, what does that tell you? Holy Spirit divinely inspired the New Testament because they're able to quote from one another. Now that's cool. Go home, think about it, take two Excedrin, you'll be all right, okay? It's a really cool thing. So notice that that's good. How about this? Look over at 3.16. This is Jesus' baptism. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And what happens after that? Behold, a voice out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What do you have at Jesus' baptism? The Trinity present. Verifying it. Authenticating it. Approving of it. Verbally. Verbally approving of who Jesus Christ is. And this is something that's important for us to understand. If you don't get anything else out of, out of what we're looking at today, we're not going to be able to get to anything I really planned today. That's okay. But by seeing this, here's one thing that you need to understand. And if you're in hermeneutics class, you've already seen that we talked about this when we dealt with the doctrine of illumination. The Holy Spirit always, always points to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit never points to Himself. The Holy Spirit is never in His commissioning by the Father put in such a way as to where He is to take center stage and to receive adoration and preeminence it is always the fact that the spirit has been given in order to give a greater knowledge understanding and comfort about who jesus christ is because all things culminate in him not in the spirit when the father puts him forward and said this is my son with whom i am well pleased why didn't he say and oh by the way the spirit flittling down here he's pretty cool too notice the text doesn't say that as god points to christ so the spirit points to christ why is that have you ever noticed that whenever you were sharing the gospel with somebody you don't say and so believe in the holy spirit and you will be saved that doesn't happen does it no it's believe in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved when Paul was asked by the Philippian jailer, Sirs, what must I do? Well, just believe in God. Any God of your choosing, just be sincere. Notice he doesn't do that. He knows nothing of that. He knows that the central focal point of all history, the chief end of all existence, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's salvation in no other name by which we must be saved, right? No one else. And so notice, God is constantly pointing to Christ. Holy Spirit, Spirit is constantly pointing to Christ both ways. How about this? Let's look over at Luke. Look over at Luke 4. This is great. You guys are, are, are good ride-along people. I love this. I wasn't even planning on going over all this, but you guys are great. I love it. We ever go on a road trip today? I'm taking all of you with me. It's a good thing. After his baptism, look at Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit 
in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is what led Jesus into a point of temptation. Now, am I saying that the Holy Spirit is going to bring about temptation in our life? No. But God has no problem testing His kids to see whether or not they believe His Word. If it's a temptation, it's a temptation because we are considering sin a viable option alongside whatever God said. That was Eve's problem. Yeah, God said this. Well, you know, I've got this answer too. Hmm, that looks like a good answer. No! It's not an answer at all. It's not on the table. It doesn't even suffice. Get it out of my sight. It's what God has said and what God has said alone. So notice, the Spirit is what leads him out and leads him through the wilderness. How about if you move down just a little bit into verse 14. After the temptation and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Notice the Spirit leading him. In fact, here's something that will be really helpful anytime that you're reading through any of the Gospels. Jesus Christ's earthly life is always lived in such a way as to where he is demonstrating to you and I on paper what it looks like for someone to walk in complete obedience to God. What is it to walk in the Spirit? Sometimes we think that walking in obedience is like, okay, i got to keep these rules and get this checklist and make sure this looks right and I better wear this tie today and if I wear blue jeans, Pastor Jeremy's going to be mad at me. No, it's none of that stuff. That's not walking in obedience. Walking in obedience is the same as walking in the Spirit. What is it to walk in the Spirit? Some of us think it's this. No, you're going to pass out if you keep doing that. Don't. Sometimes we try to make it all what we believe the idea of being super spiritual is. You know what it is? It's simply knowing God's Word and asking for Him to make it a reality in your life. It's simply the fact of what God has said about a situation. I need to be convinced more and more that that is the truth about that situation and then respond accordingly. That's what it is to walk in the Spirit. It's walking in obedience. It's a moment-by-moment thing. Today, you are going to get faced with choices. It's going to happen the rest of your life. And the, and, the, and the answers here are always going to be this. Will I trust God in this situation? Or will I tell Him no? Doesn't matter what it is. I don't care if you're grocery shopping. You're going to find that you're going to come across choices. That even the slightest things are going to be about sins. Do you look over at the National Enquirer and entertain that in your mind or not? Do you check out that... What do you ladies read? I don't even know. Red Book? Is that close? Man, I go through some of these places. I actually saw a kiosk display of some nail polish company. And they had in big bright letters, sinful colors. Get behind me, Satan! Right? Now, of course, that's the fanatical way to take it, but that's where our culture is. Sin is so delightful and the world wants to liken it to like chocolate-covered cherries or something like that. It's not. What is wrong with us? We have forgotten God. Good gravy. Oh, anyway. Sorry. I just, do you feel like that sometimes? Sometimes I just want to take a pin and stab myself in my ears and be like, stop. What is all this junk? 
I stress myself out. Okay. Let's end with this. This is a great verse. Chapter 4 of Luke, verse 18 and 19. Let me set the scene for you, okay? Jesus comes into a synagogue in Galilee, where he's from. And as he's there, they're, they're, they're going through the ritualistic religious kind of observances and readings, all that stuff. And somebody um, makes the mistake of inviting Jesus to read. You know? Which is all, hey, you're new. You look like you got something to say. You know? Jump at Jesus sitting there being like, thank you, God. You know? And so they hand him a scroll of Isaiah. And this is really interesting. When we get to hermeneutics, we talk, start talking about how to interpret prophecy. What Jesus teaches us here is interesting. I'm not going to ruin it for you. You can just search the internet and scratch your head and do it for yourself. But I want to show you this. Notice he opens it up, pulls out the scroll, and here's what he says. Watch what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now stop. Anybody know when Isaiah was written? 700 something B.C. Jesus is reading it in the first century A.D. He is reading something that was written 700 years before that is speaking precisely to who he is. And notice, with a 700-year gap, there was one thing that was going to identify the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And look what he says. Because he anointed me. Now watch this. This isn't health, wealth, prosperity anointing. Watch this. To preach the gospel to the who? Poor. Now stop for a second. And I, I know I'm going to sit on this for just a little bit. But this was revolutionary in that time. If you were poor in the first century, you were garbage. Nobody talked to you. Nobody dealt with you. Everybody, mm, uh, uh, I got time for you. I got more holy things to do, right? Thank you, God. I'm not like this stupid tax collector over here. I give everything in my, and it was all, it's the same self-righteousness and pride that we deal with today. Notice, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit from God to talk to poor people about the gospel. Those people that everybody else threw out and didn't have time for, guess what? That's who Jesus wants to be with. That's the idea. It's revolutionary as far as a social construct. Notice it says here, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Imagine, Jesus is saying, hey, I know what's written in this scroll is 700 years old, but let me tell you what it says about me right now in front of you, right where you see me. Now, because we didn't follow anything I had planned today at all, I don't know that I have a good wrap-up or application. But here's what we do know. The Holy Spirit has been actively involved in creation history, existence from the very first word, from the very beginning and even much more before so that we don't fully understand. And so when we start unpacking this idea of the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to be able to do it justice, this topic is way beyond my understanding, definitely. But when we start unfolding these things and we start talking about how the Holy Spirit is actively involved in how we share the gospel with people, how we live, and make choices. 
He's no longer going to become the kid that we just kind of put in the back seat of the car and just keep driving without paying attention. He is very much God. He is very much alive. He is very much waiting for the opportunity, especially in the church age, for us to confess our sins and lay them down and get them out of the way and turn away from a lot of commonly accepted, nice, okay sins that we all have so we all can be together and say, well, that's not so bad because I do that too kind of thing. To get rid of all that stuff and start to get a holy glimpse of who Jesus Christ is so that he can further point us and move us in that direction to be different. Some of us in this room are scared to death that we're going to get a little bit of the Holy Spirit on us. Some of you giggle. And the reason is, is because the only thing that we know or relate to the idea of the Holy Spirit is what we saw in the Blues Brothers movie. That's all we know. Cartwheels down the middle aisle. That's all we understand. That is not the Holy Spirit, guys. The Holy Spirit is moving our hearts to be at complete peace with all the adversity that is around us because we're not worried about the things of this world because our citizenship is in heaven. And it actually develops the desire, everybody hold on, it actually develops the desire for us to be speaking to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice that he covered the songs, the hymns, and the spiritual songs. That joke will make more sense to you later. But... The whole gamut. And if we're not living a life that is like that, then I think that a question we need to ask ourselves is what are we missing about what the Holy Spirit wants to do so that we get a greater appreciation and reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ? I think that's important. So with that said, let's take a moment, let's pray. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. And we will continue more of this next Sunday. Father, I pray that our eyes have been open to see some amazing things about how the Spirit works and helps and moves and makes a difference. Father, some of us are not so sure about the Holy Spirit. Even though we're believers in Christ, even though He resides in every one of us, maybe it's, a, it's something that we've considered more um, frightening than familiar. Father, that's a beautiful thing about Your Word. Your Word is meant to bring comfort to our hearts and to make the unsure things, those things of confidence. That everything You want to move our lives towards is a greater knowledge and understanding of You. Father, what a, a blessed privilege we have that we are never without the Holy Spirit. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're never without the Spirit. He is always residing in us. He always wants to work with us. He wants to motion us towards righteousness and holiness and godliness. Father, if we're being convicted right now, maybe the boundaries standing in the way of our spiritual growth are things that we've put there ourselves. That is the Holy Spirit letting us know. Telling our hearts it can't go on the same. We know what is right. We need to do it. We need to obey what God has said. So I pray, Father, for each one of us, whatever that may be, that we would be sensitive and responsive to that now. Pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.